In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last time, just a quick review. We said that Daniel was in the exile and he graduated him and the three young men from the school of the Babylonian. And after three years, they became a part of the leaders of the kingdom. At some point, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he asked people to interpret the dream. The dream was significant for him because he thought it talks about the future events of the kingdom. And as I mentioned to you, historically, two out of the three kings of Babylon were assassinated. So to him, it was extremely important for him to know what is that dream is all about. So he told the wise men, he told them, look, I don't want only you to tell me the explanation of the dream. I want you to tell me what was the dream. And obviously, nobody knew. And Daniel told him, I will get you the explanation. He had a prayer meeting with the three young men. And God revealed to him the dream in a, in a, in a night vision. And after God revealed him the dream in the night vision, he saw a big statue. And that statue was, the head was made out of gold. The chest and the arm were made out of silver. The belly and the thighs were made out of bronze. The legs out of iron. And the feet out of clay and iron. And we said that these represents different kingdom. The head made out of gold represents Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. The belly, the chest and the arms are made out of silver represents Persian and Medi, which came from 539 to 331. The belly and the thighs made out of bronze, which represents the Greek kingdom led by Alexander the Great. And then the, the iron represents the Roman Empire. And we said the feet that was made out of clay and iron represents that the kingdom was divided which we know, even though it was a very strong kingdom, that it was split into west and east, Augustus here, Augustus here, Caesar here, Caesar here. And then the dream had a stone that was cut out of nowhere without human hands, like our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was born without human hands, and hit the, uh, hit the statue at the feet. And the statue was destroyed into pieces, and there was no more evidence of it. And then that stone became a big mountain that filled the whole earth. And we said that this was a prophecy about the kingdom of God that will come during the time of the Roman Empire, which is the church. The kingdom of God is the church. And it will fill the whole world, which that's what happened. And then it lasts forever because the church would last forever. Not only until the second coming of Christ, but we always call heaven, we call it the victorious church, the ever coming church. So last time we stopped at verse chapter 2, verse 45, when Daniel just completed explaining the dream and the interpretation to the king. Now let's look at verse 46. Obviously the king was amazed that somebody was able to tell him the dream and its interpretation. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrated before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. King Nebuchadnezzar, imagine this is the greatest king of the, of the whole world, now prostrating to an 18 years old. The fact that he offered him incense, he is not worshipping Daniel, but it's a way of honoring God of Daniel, is to honor the people of Daniel, uh, the people of God. And the main reason that this reaction is something that we would all expect is because the emperor finally found the truth. 
And the most valuable thing we can find is the truth. It's the greatest search of our life. That's why when Jesus came, he said, I am the truth. And there are certain moments in our life where there's a transformation. Is when we realize certain truth in our life. We might have heard them before, but when we realize them, it's a big difference. However, you will see that the king did not ask any questions about God of Daniel. Who is this God? No question. His own worries were answered. What's the dream? What's going to happen? And he just moved on. He just moved on. Imagine, kid, if you see a big miracle, you would be curious to ask more. Nothing. And that shows you sometimes how we are so involved in our own life that we miss very obvious events in our life. Very obvious times when God is talking. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secrets. So he's telling him, you know what? Your God is superior to all the gods I know. Because he revealed that secret to you. Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. So he believes in multiple gods. So he had no problem believing in the God of Israel because it still fits within his system of life. And by the way, this is a sign of true worship. When I start going beyond the norm that the world does, that's when I start truly worshiping God. If all my worship is simply, you know what, let me just... Uh, Everybody donates money. Let me donate money. Everybody uh, likes to say the truth. I'm going to say the truth. All these things are good. But this is also things accepted by the world. When I go beyond it, when I start learning to reject my own will, that's when true worship comes out. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Obviously, this is an extremely great honor. Like Daniel almost became like the chief of staff of Nebuchadnezzar at 18 years old. So this is huge. A very young man is now leading everybody else. Okay? You always have to think about this. This seems great. Anybody would love to have this, a great promotion. But being in the palace of the king, being in the leadership of the king, it means that Daniel is also vulnerable to many temptations and many challenges. And that's why sometimes, for example, people would be looking for career choices or schools or places. And I love when people put the spiritual life as one of the concerns. Like, Abuna, I'm going to move away and go to this place. But there's no church next to it. I'm not sure if I want to go. Considering these things are extremely important. So because Daniel obviously realized that the result he received was not only 
because of his relationship with God is because he has a fellowship. And this fellowship, the spiritual fellowship is very important for Daniel. So Daniel in verse 49, and also Daniel petitioned the king. And he set Shadrach, Meshach, Abdenago over the affairs of the providence of, Pab of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So this verse is important to understand because it will explain the next story. So where is Daniel? Daniel is in Babylon, serving in Babylon. Where are the three young men? They are in the providence, in the small cities away from Babylon. But they are leaders. They are watching over uh, these cities. So Daniel did not take all the credit for himself. He also realized that he needs his spiritual fellowship. So once he received this great gifts and reward from the king, he told him, wait, I have some friends I want to take care of. And he brought them to, and, and, and the, virtue, the, the virtue of loyalty is extremely important. Loyalty and faithfulness are tied together. And the world, unfortunately, does not teach loyalty anymore. But we see that Daniel was loyal to his friends. Now we're going to move to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is very familiar to all of us. This is the three young men in the furnace. So we'll take this chapter slowly because there's a lot of things in there. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. And set it up in the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. So where is Daniel? He's in Babylon. Where are the three young men? In the providence of Babylon. So when the king will say, will decree that everybody has to worship the statue that he's going to make, Daniel is not in the area. You can think when the king leaves Babylon, he has to leave somebody managing the affairs in Babylon. So Daniel was not there in the province of the, uh, where the three young men is. Okay, so this is, explains why Daniel is not in this story. Now think about it this way. It says here, the king made an image of gold. Remember last chapter, what did he see? He saw an image and the head of the image or the statue was made out of gold. And God told him that this head is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You see, this man had a spiritual experience. And instead of using the spiritual experience to advance his spiritual life, he used it to feed in his ego, his pride. He said, oh, there's an image, the head is gold, I'm the gold, let me make a big statue of gold. Let me make a, a big statue of gold. One of the scholars, his name is W. Shia, he said, that he found actually more than 50 officials listed in the Babylonian text, and he found the three young men names mentioned. And he connected uh, Sidrock, he said his role was the chief of royal merchants, and, as, uh, and Abdenago was the secretary of the crown prince, and Misael was the overseer of the slave girls. So those three young men, actually there's historical evidence that they existed, and the historical evidence that they were named among the uh, officials of Babylon. Now, you have to think about this 
also in a historical sense, it was not uncommon for emperors at this time to build the statues. So this is nothing out of the blue. Okay? And you will see even in Egypt, for example, uh, 2500 BC, the, there's a very famous uh, statue in Egypt called the Sphinx. Right? The Sphinx is actually 240 feet high, 66, uh, uh, 200, uh, 240 feet long, and 60 feet, 66 feet high. And it's a lion body and a human head. But the image you see here of the statue, it's a very tall statue. It's, only, it's almost 90, 90 cubits. It's a very tall statue. It's almost like if you think of the statue that the Bible is describing, it's almost like a pole. Okay? But a lot of historians say that the height he's talking about does not only represent the statue, but also the huge base that he had to build the statue on. I'm just explaining that to you because some people might think the dimensions does not make sense. But I'm just telling you how people calculated the dimension. So there's a big base that you have to build a statue on, and it goes, it goes up. And this was a common practice that we have seen in the old days. Just to get a quick point I want to keep in mind. Where did, where did Nebuchadnezzar get the gold from? Obviously, he's a very rich king. He has many sources for gold. But one of the main sources of gold that he got almost 100,000 talents of gold from Jerusalem, from the temple. Everything in the temple was laid with gold. Each talent is about 36 kilograms. So he has a huge statue. Obviously, not the full statue is made out of gold. It's laid with gold. And where does this image came from? Where does this gold came from? Most likely from Jerusalem. And imagine the sin of Israel has caused the walls of the church, the gold of the temple, to participate in idol worship. It's a humiliation to God. It's a humiliation to God. Uh, there is actually, there, there's actually just a, a, another piece of historical uh, evidence, and then we'll go later. There's a French scholar, a French archaeologist. His name is uh, Juper, and and he actually found a brick structure that represents the statue that he's talking about, and he found actually also the ruins of the city of Dora, which is 16 miles south of Babylon. So it's important for us as we go through this thing to look at some of the historical evidence because the book of Daniel, as I was telling you, was targeted by many people of its historicity. So I'm just trying to give you some uh, evidence for it. So the city was there. They discovered some ruins for it, 16 miles south of Babylon as well. And the king Nebuchadnezzar sent a word to gather together the straps, the administrators, the governors, the councils, the treasurer, the judge, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So all the, the, the straps, the administrators, the governor, the councils, the treasurer, the judges, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So basically Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what, get me everybody. The straps are the princes, or those who rule over larger divisions. And then the perfects are the governors. The governors are the captains. And then the advisors, the Lomar councils, the treasurer, the judges, and the, the magistrates, the the sheriff, kind of. So he brought everybody, all those who are leaders. And he told them, I want you to come, and I want you to worship this image. I want to tell you guys something. 
In the ancient time, it was not uncommon for a king to be worshipped. But it was uncommon in Babylon to worship the king. It was uncommon in Babylon to worship the king. So most likely the image that he created is not of Nebuchadnezzar himself, but it's an image that he wants people to worship to, to show some loyalty to him. You guys understand what I'm trying to say? So let's just kind of stop here and review so I don't, I don't want to lose you guys. So basically what happened is he took this idea from the dream that he had the chapter before, most likely, instead of making this dream humble him, it made him actually more prideful. It's like if somebody, for example, have seen a saint or have seen a, a vision or they know like a very special holy person, they walk around, oh, I know this person, I can call him for you, we have pictures, we have this. And instead of taking the, the, the experience that they have for a spiritual growth and reflection, it becomes a means for pride. That's what he did. And the children of God did not help because they allowed him to come and take the gold of the temple and most likely that's what he used to build this image. And there's a lot of historical evidence for the city that he's in, for the statue that he built, and also to mention the three young men as part of the officials of Babylon and what were their jobs. Okay? Now when he brought everybody, then a herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O people, nations, and language, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and, and uh, psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So basically, there's a proclaimer, somebody who's going to say, look, all nations, all people. This is, this is the same verses, by the way, that the Bible used in Revelation about God himself. All nations, all people, all languages. Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense, thinks of himself as God. And it was indeed, Babylon had a lot of people from different nations and different people and different tongues. And we know, for example, from 2 Kings 25, 22, 25, that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar hired officials all over the world because he was in control. He was in control. And then he says here, look, I'm going to play the music. Obviously, these six instruments are a strong instrument, but it's probably just partially part of the instrument that is being used. I mean, the Bible probably mentioned some of them. And these instruments are enough to get you into the mood. Enough to get you in the mood of what? Of worship. When you hear the music, when you hear everybody screaming, everybody's worshiping, it's a lot of pressure. That's why we always say music has a lot of impact on our life. But the one thing I want you guys to keep in mind is none of these instruments were used in Jewish worship. None of these instruments were used in Jewish worship. And you can imagine, you can imagine the amount of pressure that's on everybody to worship. The greatest king, the most powerful king is there. The music are playing. People are proclaiming. It's just intense. You have an image that's 90 feet high. 
a huge made out of gold is so shining. They have never seen anything like this. And he said, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So here the king revealed the consequences of those who disobey him. They will be put in fire. And actually this was a common practice. You'll even see it in Jeremiah. If you open Jeremiah 19, uh, 29, 22, it says also, and because of them, a curse shall be taken up by the captivity of Judah who are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. So it was known practice for the king of Babylon to actually put people in the fire. The temperature there in the fire was about 100 degrees Celsius. So this is... This is extremely hot. This is actually, some historians say, this is where you, they used to make the bricks. You know, the bricks that they build buildings with. And sometimes the way they do it is there are two different, two different ways to do it. One is you use the same uh, site that you build the bricks in to, to, to create buildings. Or you can do it next to a hill. If you have a small hill, you can build a fire next to it. So you, have, you can go up to the hill to look from the top if you want to throw somebody. And you have a door from the side where you actually start adding more wood and stuff to build the fire. So you can do it next to a hill or you can do it next to a brick building site. And this was a common, common, uh, common process of killing people in the Babylonian, in the Persian, in the Greek period. It was mainly designed for criminals. It was mainly designed for criminals. So at the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the symphony with all kinds of music, all people, nation, and language fell down and worshipped the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Everybody worshipped. And obviously this is not a big deal for many cultures at that time. Not a lot of people in that time believed in a single God. Only the Jews at that time, they were monotheists. Everybody was polytheist. And that's the importance of not allowing the culture to, to change you. Because in this time, every culture used to worship multiple gods, except one. And you could be one of the very few who have to worship the true God. Look what happened. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. What's happening is a lot of the Chaldeans, they are not happy that the three young men at a very young age became ruler over Providence and they became trusted by the king. So they were very jealous. And they wanted to get also a way to get close to the king. So they will see that the three young men did not worship the image. So they're going to go to the king and tell him, look, those three young men did not worship the image. So I want to tell you guys something. If you are doing something and you're proud of it, you're not going to feel bad that other people are not doing it. If you're truly confident about what you're doing. 
A lot of times when people are sinning, they want everybody to sin with them. Because this is, in its nature is not good. And here, they are jealous. They're trying to get to the king. And they, they are going to the king and look at what they're going to tell him. Then they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. This is the common greeting. You, O king, have made the decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the, the psaltery, and the symphony with all the kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. So they are reminding the king of his decree just to get him angry. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. That's what you said. There are certain Jews, Jews, those rebels that, that you brought over, whom you have set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. You put them, you promoted them. Sedrak, Misach, Abdenago. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They did not respect you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. You see, the way you frame an issue makes a big difference. When they went to the king, this is somebody saying something so they can get the king angry. You know, they could have told him, you know, those three young men who are friends of Daniel, you know, like they helped us out last, last chapter and we're not all dead because of them. None of that. They said, remember your decree? They don't respect you. They are setting up an extremely dangerous case against them. They are not loyal to the king. They are disobeying the command of the king. They don't serve the king's gods. It's all a big issue. Now, I want to tell you guys something and pay attention to what I'm going to tell you because I think this to me was, a, was something very insightful. In Judaism, at that time, they don't understand the concept of martyrdom. There's no martyrdom whatsoever. Okay? So I want to read a passage to you from 2 Kings 5.18. And please write it down because this passage will show you how significant are the three young men. Said yet, in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. This is a conversation between Naaman and Elisha. Naaman was somebody from Syria came and Elisha saved him. I just want to read a passage and I'll go back to it. It says, yet this thing may the Lord pardon your servants. When my master goes into the temple of the Riumon to worship there, and he leans on my hands, and I bow down in the temple of Riumon. Then I bow down in the temple of Riumon. May the Lord please pardon, pardon your servants in this thing. So what is the man telling Elisha? He's telling him, look, when I go back to my country, I'm going to go to the temple of the Syrian gods. And I'm going to have to get into the temple and worship the Syrian god. Can you pardon me in that? Why am I telling you this? You can already see what's coming. Is that in the Jewish tradition, there are some people when they were away from Palestine, when they're away from Jerusalem, they actually did not feel that they need to strictly adhere to the worship of Yahweh, worship of God. They felt they can come up with ways to excuse themselves from worshiping God because they are away from Jerusalem. So there is no concept of martyrdom to the three young men. I just want you to understand how faithful these young men are. They have no priest. They have no bishop. They have no church next to them. They also have no martyrs, martyrs before them. 
there are no martyrs to follow. And there are certain examples in the Bible that they could find an excuse to say, you know what, I'll just bow down in front of them and just let it go. Remember this guy in the Old Testament, he told Elisha, I'm going to go worship in the Syrian temple. What's the big deal? You see the, the three young men, we'll see how faithful, faithful they are. They did not find an excuse for themselves. The worst thing we do in our spiritual life, uh, we constantly find excuse to sin. Excuse to be unfaithful to God. And they went beyond all expectation. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage, he got angry and fury. Give the command to bring Sadrach, Meshach, and Abdenagel. So they, they, brought the, they brought these men before the king. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar, you can think, this is the most powerful man on earth. And nobody tells him no. But once they told him they are not respecting you, it was like, they are not respecting me, bring them. Okay, so they came over. Obviously, this is intimidating to the three young men. You're standing in front of a great king with a great army, with great music. Everything is just tough. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, Is it true, Sidrach, Misak, and Abdenago, that you do not serve my gods or worship, or worship the gold image which I have set up? He almost cannot believe it. He's in disbelief. Is it true? That you're not worshiping my gods? It's very intimidating. I think if I, was in, if I were in their shoes, I would be so scared. All right? He says, is it true? Now, if you are ready, at the time when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the image which I have made. Uh, I have made. Good, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be willing to give the three young men another chance. He said, look, he seemed like maybe he liked them, he remembered them. He said, look, I will give you another chance. I will play the whole orchestra for you, just kind of huh, to give you a push. All right, I will do that for you. And it's intimidating. And he told him, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I want to stop here for a second. Look, Nebuchadnezzar is theologically confused. Why is he theologically confused? Because the fact that he, as a king of Babylon, was able to defeat the Jews and take over the land, it means that his God is stronger than the God of Babylon. Okay, that's one thing. The second thing is last chapter, he saw that the God of Yahuwah, God of Israel, is actually a strong God. He was able to reveal to Daniel, he was able to reveal to Daniel the dream and its interpretation. So in a way, he's challenging the God of Israel. He told him, I know your God, you know, interpret dreams, but see if he will save you from my hand this time. Like, my God is stronger than your guy, God kind of a thing. Okay? Look at what Sidrak, Misak, and Abdu'l-Nahu said. Sidrak, Misak, and Abdu'l-Nahu answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this matter. Like, don't play the music. Okay? 
If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. The three young men said, look, we are not, we're not intimidated, we're not scared, and we're not going to give an apology on our faith. We believe in God. Your methods is not going to intimidate me. The cancel culture and people calling people names and all this stuff is not going to intimidate me. I'm going to be firm in my faith. And you're not going to force your practice into my practice. By the way, they humbly accepted the fact that God might not save them. They told him, God is able. They did not tell him, he will. We'll see this in the next verse. And, and when you look about this, you think, you, 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 you think, think about this in a, in a way. In chapter 1, Daniel was so confident that God will answer his request. In this story, they were doubtful that God will save them. And that's important to understand because the life of the saints... Sometimes God reveals to them, and sometimes God doesn't. God put in Daniel's heart that I will help you. And Daniel was so confident, he knows the voice of God. Today, they heard, they were not sure. But they are faithful to God. And basically, they're telling him, what are you going to do to us? You're going to kill us in the name of God? Great, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to live and a miracle happen? That's also great. It, these are 18, 19 years old. Little kids. But if not, look, verse 18. But if not, if God does not save us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You see the courage? You see the strength? Even though we might not understand the trials that we are in, but God is calling us to trust in Him. The worst thing that we want is we want to walk with God without trusting. Why does God want this? Why does God want me to? Why did God allow this? What? Trust. Trust. Walk. Experience. You see somebody waiting for something, whether an interview or waiting to go out with somebody or waiting for a job or who knows, and they're just as if the world is ending. Trust. Walk with God. Experience. That's what God is saying. This is not even tribulation. These guys were in real tribulation. That's why our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 10, 28 said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Life in the exile brings a potential threat to the distinctive of the Jews. If they submit to the culture around them, they'll no longer be their own, the people of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression of his face changed towards Sidrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's like getting so angry. And he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was heated already. Seven times I mean as hot as possible, basically. That's basically saying. I mean, this is just to show 
the, the imagine with me obviously when the, the furnace is already hot as it is so the the three young men are watching standing as they are heating the furnace even more that's in itself it's a psychologically draining experience if you you know if you they kill you right away it's easier but watching how hot the fire gets it's extremely scary but he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in the army to bind Sidrak, Misak, and Abdenagu and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Fiery, fiery furnace. He brought in the strongest people he has. Just more intimidation. Probably one soldier is equal to the three young men put together. You know, we're talking about the top, the top guys for the king. Some people say he probably, a part of him was worried that if Yahweh intervened, so he wanted to kind of, you know, have his young, the strongest people on, on staff just, to, just in case if anybody intervenes. Then these men, the three young men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbines, and, and, and their, their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So they tied them down with their clothes, with everything, and threw them into the fire. And remember I was telling you, imagine if this was on a hill, so it means like most likely they went up to the hill to throw them from the top. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Sidrak, Misak, and Abdenago. So the king was like, now, do this now. So usually they will tie them in ropes and they will push them, but they are tying them, holding on the ropes. But because of the heat, the heat itself killed the strong men that was throwing them into the fire. And it shows you how, because the king was angry and intimidating, even those men of power and strength were intimidated by him that they did not manage themselves correctly to throw the children in without killing themselves. The strong men were intimidated. The young men were not intimidated. And these men, Sidrak, Misak, and Abdenagu, fell down, bound into the midst of the, fir, uh, of the uh, burning fiery furnace. They were thrown into from the top of the hill. Now, verse 24, I want you to make a small note in your, in your Bible. Please get your Bible and make a small note. If you look at verse 24 in the Septuagint, you will see the verse goes as following. There's a section that's missing. It says, And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises. And there's actually in the Septuagint, there is, a, there is a, a, something called the prayer of Azariah. And if you guys remember the third host that we pray, in the, in the Tazbaha, in the Midnight Praises, this is where it's taken from. So this is the difference between following the Septuagint, which the church uses, and following the New King James Version that you have. Is that you won't have the prayer of the three young men in the furnace. 
Is that clear or not clear? Okay. So verse 24, if you look at the Septuagint, it says, And now Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises. This is not in your Bible. Okay. And now if you, if you want to, if you actually look at the prayer of Ezra, I'm going to, uh, Zariah, I'm going to read part of it. It said, Blessed are you, O Lord, God of our ancestors, and worthy of praise, and glorious is your name forever. For you are just in all, and all what you have done. All your works are true, and your ways are right, and all your judgment are true. You have executed true judgment in all your ways you have brought us, and so on. So actually, if you compare this to the third host, you will see them very close. So when they fell into the fire, they were praising God. And this is, remember I told you at the beginning that the, the story of Susanna and the, and the prayer of Azariah are not in the New King James. It's in the second chronicle, which is the completion of Daniel, just so you remember. But when they fell in the fiery furnace, they start praising God. Look at the rest of the verse. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsels, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. The king himself is like, Look, what happened? Look, a beautiful scene of the three young men in the midst of fire. They are praising, and God is right next to them. And this image is important for us to put in our head as I walk through life. Sometime I might not see Christ physically with my own eyes. But here, this is how our life looks like. We are in the fire, and what are the three young men doing? They are praising God in the midst of tribulation. In the midst of difficulty. You know, Nebuchadnezzar probably were standing, he says, let me see this man suffer, the ones who disobey me. And all of a sudden, he saw a scene he was never expecting. The fact that we go through life praising God in the midst of tribulation is the most beautiful scene we can give to the world. Just like in his suffering, Christ transformed our suffering. In our own suffering, we transform the world. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and, from, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Imagine, so when they put him in the fire, they tied them down. They were tied with ropes. When they got into the fire, the fire only destroyed the ropes that they were tied in. They're walking in the fire. And the king cannot believe it. Look, this is, this is, this is unbelievable. And he says, the fourth man looks like a son of God's. When you look at the Jewish understanding of this fourth man, a lot of them, even in the Talmud, a lot of them said the fourth man is an archangel, Archangel Gabriel. Some of them saw him as the Archangel. But we as Christian, we know that Christ appeared in the Old Testament multiple times. But I want to tell you guys something, keep in mind. That a lot of times in the Old Testament when Christ appeared, they were referred to him as an angel. 
angel of the presence of God or angel of the Lord. You'll see this in Exodus 3.2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire. Appeared to who? Moses. In the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold the bush was burning with fire but the bush was not consumed. Who appeared to him? The angel of the Lord. So it's a very common language to use the, because they did not understand who Christ is. They don't know who Jesus is. But we as Christians obviously know. Now I'll tell you guys something beautiful. When the three young men are walking in the fire, they have actually experienced some of the promises of God. If you open Isaiah 4.3.2, what does it say? When you walk through the fire, you will, you will not be burned, the flames will not set you ablaze. This was a promise that God has given His people. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, the flames will not set you ablaze. Not everyone experiences the promises of God. Because most of the promises of God are conditional. And most of the promises of God requires faithfulness. Most of the promises of God are conditional. And most of the promises of God require faithfulness. They have experienced the promises of God that they will walk through fire and they will not be burned. Then the Nazar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke saying, Sidrach, Mesach, Abdenago, the servant of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Sidrach, Mesach, and Abdenago came from the midst of the fire. If I were them, I would not leave the fire. I would just sit in the fire. But he called them and they came out. See, see the, the beauty of the children of God? They are very obedient. They are not rebellious in, 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 in nature. But when it, comes to, when it comes to God, they are strong. They are firm. Because that's their identity. That's their identity. So they came out of the fire, appeared in front of him. And he referred to God, the most high God. So this time, he said, you know what? Last time, I thought your God is a good God, a strong God. But today, I'm going to refer to him as the most high God. Like he's the greatest God among all the other gods. Again, Nebuchadnezzar still did not ask more about that God. Did not inquire more about him. It was almost like an entertainment for him. At this point, he stops. He just watched something that you've never seen before. And by the way, like it's very, in the Bible, when a foreigner refers to God as the most high God, it's significant. Because he's referring to him as the, the, ultimate, the, the supreme God. I mean, he still believes in other gods, but he still believes that this God is the most powerful God. We see this, for example, in Genesis 14 with uh, Melchizedek. We see it in Deuteronomy 32.8. There's many references in the Bible. I won't go through them. But when foreigners would refer to God as the most high God. And all the straps and administrators and the governors, the king's council gathered together. They saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not even in them. When they came out, people were looking at them and was like, let me see this. What? Nothing? Not even the smell? 
of fire in them? They could not believe it. They could not believe it. That's why, if you guys remember in Luke 12, 7, when Jesus was talking about persecution, what did he say? He said, indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. And he's referencing, or trying to remind people of what happened in the fiery furnace. God did not order a single hair from them to be burned. And sometimes God does order. But it, and that's, that allows us to walk in life without fear. That allows us to walk in life without what? Without fear. Uh, I think I'm going to stop here because we're already 9 o'clock. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.